0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the webinar on backyard real estate harnessing the potential for township development. So my name is Andreas Sheba and I'm a, a senior research specialist at the Human Science Research Council. And together with Ivan Turek and Justin Visarchi, I will be facilitating the discussion today. So, Justin is also a senior research specialist at the HSRC. And Ivan is a Saji research chair in city region economies at the HSRC and the University of the Free State. We're so really uh, pleased to have you all um, logged into the webinar on board, and I think we can all look forward to an exciting two hours of good discussions on a really, I think, uh, relevant topic. Um, we're really pleased to have an exciting panel of speakers who all have been closely involved in the backyard rental sector over, over the years. So we have Mr. Charles Rutman from the city of Cape Town, Mr. Jack Kosev from the office of the Premier of the Gauteng government, Ms. Claire de Trevoux from Bitprop, Mr. Zama Kwatu from Development Action Group, and Mr. Neville Cheney from the Department of Human Settlements. And they will all give a short presentation of about 10 minutes followed by an open discussion and then a brief, brief reflection by, by Ivan at the end. Um, but before handing over to them, I'm just going to briefly outline the context of today's webinar, um, yeah, which couldn't be more relevant given the developments currently happening with the human settlements policy, uh, which I'm sure you have all, uh, which you are following closely. I'm going to share my screen now. Okay, so the backyard housing segment is undergoing significant transformations and market-driven densification. As you know, homeowners and small-scale developers are replacing shacks and wooden structures with solid one- or multi-story flats. In response to a growing demand for better quality rental accommodation in our townships which uh, comes especially from young professionals with stable incomes. So this trend is happening across the country, but it's uneven between and within cities. And it's especially um, concentrated in the better located townships of our cities. So it's a bottom up uh, initiative. It's outside of a formal policy or government initiative. It's individual homeowners developing developer entrepreneurs and also private sector companies that have over the past four or five years actively engaged in the backyard rental sector and have transformed it and um, there are a lot of development opportunities that come along with this trend so it obviously brings affordable better quality adequate rental accommodation uh, in our townships as i said replacing rudimentary structures with more solid um, rental flats and as we all know there is a huge need for affordable rental accommodation in our cities and so homeowners and entrepreneurs are or have been responding to this trend it also brings enterprise growth employment creation and income generation to homeowners developers and other companies and individuals involved in the value chain um, related to the construction of the microflats, as well as the property markets and advisory services around building plans, et cetera. It has the potential to really improve the living environment of our townships, to create higher building stock and more quality accommodation in, in often marginalized areas. And it also contributes to a city making of making our cities more compact, more integrated, and efficient, um, which is also really important when you look at the financial sustainability of our cities and of the, the consequences of our uh, human settlements policy and RDP programs through the so through this um, transformation of the backyarding sector we make better use of infrastructure of transport facilities um, and hopefully also create more integrated living spaces however there are risks and negative consequences also attached to this trend and uh, we believe that if unmanaged this market-led transformation of our backyarding sector can also lead to a downward spiral and the negative consequences in the townships. So in order to avoid those or minimize the risk and harness the the positive elements of this bottom-up energy, we believe that there are a few main challenges that need to be addressed going forward. And I really look forward to um, our speakers and, and their presentations who are directly related also to those main challenges. We believe there are four critical challenges that will have to be addressed in future. The first one is to we need to create a more appropriate regulatory environment, more streamlined administrative processes, and a stronger enforcement capacity on the ground to support those bottom-up activities, which for now have largely been informal, for um, with a complex relationship between the formal regulatory system, and we need to, through a better regulatory environment and processes, encourage formalization, incentivize compliance, uh, while still supporting the growth of the sector, and at the same time, make sure that the buildings are healthy and safe, that basic planning objectives are being met, and the risks of fraud and conflicts are being minimized. Secondly we need to look at more inclusive financing mechanisms um, that widen the net, so to say, of homeowners and developers who want to engage and uh, build backyard rental accommodation. Those financing options obviously need to be low cost, um, low risk, ideally, and also come with technical and management support in order to assist homeowners and homeowners and developers to, for example, meet basic compliance requirements formalize and ensure basic health and safety and we also need to look at the long-term sustainability of the housing stock that is being created um, which can if done well contribute to asset creation in the townships to asset creation for the homeowner and really contribute to the whole regeneration of of the townships thirdly We need a targeted enterprise support. Our main challenge is how do we target an effective enterprise support. Um, The backyard rental sector, the transformation, has a huge potential to contribute to township economic development. As I said, there are a lot of emerging um, entrepreneurs operating in the sector uh, who could benefit from training and support in order to increase the skills. Formalize the businesses, which also gives them the opportunity to access wider markets, go beyond the townships, even beyond our cities and country, and um, in that process, contribute to employment generation and inclusive growth, which uh, is so urgently needed in our country at the moment. And fourthly, a big challenge is how can we direct or guide the bottom-up process of backyard transformation to really contribute to sustainable neighborhoods in the townships. Um, So as I said, there are risks of a downward spiral where you have overcrowding, um, problems with the infrastructure capacity, um, and conflicts between tenants and landlords. So we need to find ways of establishing strong local institutions and urban management practices that can reduce the externalities, make sure that the collective benefits are being generated and shared, and that um, we can kind of maximize the potential of those developments by looking, for example, at consolidation of different sites, mixed use developments so that we have rental flats that have both the commercial and the residential use and to adequately um, enhance public infrastructure and integrate the public in- infrastructure with the growing density to have enough schools, health, health clinics, um, roads, etc. So these are the, the main challenges that we and others before us have identified. And I'm very pleased that we have speakers today who have long before recognized those challenges and have actively experimented with new ways of overcoming them and addressing them. And um, I'm now gonna hand over to Mr. Charles Ratman, who will be the first of our speakers. He was a district manager in the Kaya and Mitchell's Plain District in Cape Town, actively worked with homeowners and developing entrepreneurs in that area who um, wanted to build rental flats in their backyard. And he is also now an advisor to the city of Cape Town on its new policy towards small scale rental accommodation. And um, yeah, I look forward to your input, Charles, and about the lessons that you've learned.
1: You'll need to stop sharing, Andreas. Uh, Yes,
0: I hope I did. Yeah. Okay, Charles is coming on, great.
2: Good afternoon, Andreas, and thank you for that introduction. Um, <clears throat> good, good afternoon. Good afternoon.
0: Yes, please go ahead, Charles. Thank you, Andreas, and thank you
2: for that introduction. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I really just want to say thank you for this opportunity uh, uh, to participate in this very important discussion. Uh, and I hope there will be many lessons to be learned. Um, uh, 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 the topic of my presentation this afternoon will be simply um, additional small-scale rental units in kailicha a bottom-up approach. Uh, my presentation will be delivered under the following headings. I will, I will look at development trends in Kailica uh, I will share with you some survey results of a detailed uh, study which we did in in, in Kailitsha on small-scale rental units. I will talk about, and I think very important, some behavioral requirements from the district planning office if we want to uh, 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 facilitate uh, this development trend. I would like to make some observations, um, and then I would like to share with you Uh, uh, some resolutions which actually have been taken by the city of Cape Town recently uh, based on a document on small scale rental accommodation in Cape Town. Um, There are some very important uh, topics which I will not touch on in my presentation because of time constraints. Uh, Can I just quickly say, I will not talk about the business case for small scale rental units, both from a city wide perspective and the individual property owner's perspective. I will also not share with you the feasibility analysis which demonstrates the attractiveness of this form of development to property owners. And lastly, I think very important, I will also not be sharing or highlighting the number of new accredited financial institutions emerging ready to finance this sector. Really, if I can quickly refer to the development trends in Kailiche, there is an absence of private sector development and investment in the Kailiche area. Uh, in interaction with the more traditional established private sector, clearly they have demonstrated that they didn't actually have an appetite to invest and participate in development projects in Kailiche. However, and that is the important point, at the individual small scale level, Kailiche is a hive of building activity. Um, as, a, as, as the district office, we wanted to engage with this strength and if possible, to assist and reinforce this activity, um, I will quickly share with you uh, the, the results of a survey which we've uh, uh, undertaken quite a comprehensive survey. And I think these, some of these results are actually quite fundamental. Um, uh, uh, again, as I've said, the planning office actually uh, uh, initiated an internal research project based on different precincts within uh, and across Eilecha. Uh, data analysis was undertaken of over 9,000 individual properties uh, to understand the nature of the accommodation found on each site. Some of the results, and I think this is very important, between 2011 and 2018, in excess of 7,000 additional units have been built on 9,000 properties. If this trend is extrapolated across Kailitsha, Uh, The conclusion can be drawn that in excess of 24,000 additional units have been built across Kyrgyzha. Very importantly, as you will see later, nearly 40% of the additional small-scale rental units have been built with brick and mortar. We We are of the opinion that the results are considered significant. Private property owners, in responding to the significant accommodation demand, are significantly contributing to the provision of housing at no cost to the state. The questions must be asked how, this, how we can use the strength to the best interest of Kailicha but also ultimately the city of Cape Town. I'll talk around some behavioral requirements of the district planning office. I think if you have looked at that previous slide there can be no argument that the safe built environment is a non-negotiable. Currently, the only instrument available to ensure a safe built environment is the national building regulations. It will be argued that the structure built and approved in terms of the national building regulations is preferable to a structure which is not actually based on an approved building plan. Um, the office realized actually that there was a need for major public uh, uh, and community education Um, And that became a major consideration for the office. We initiated a number of newspaper articles on the importance of building plans and the resulting value add. The value of a house as an economic asset is actually emphasized. We also really started to talk about the role of a building inspector, uh, moving away from the the traditional role of actually enforcement, rather to a role of where we say, he's actually an, an, an an ambassador of the office. In fact, um, he needs actually to add public value through using his actually knowledge, experience and skills to help and assist uh, um, and to give advice uh, on, on the ground. And so, so, so we've, we've emphasized actually that role. We've also been as, through processes of engagement, outreach and advocacy, uh, uh, saw a major increase in the number of building plans submitted to our offices. And we argue that the office has to be sensitive to to that trend, And as a result, we we put a big emphasis uh, to to ensure that the turnaround of building plans actually were maximized. Um, We we move uh, from a, a, a position where we argue we need to look for reasons to approve building plans as opposed to why building plans could not actually be approved. I can simply say that um, we, 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 had, uh, we were turning out building plans in excess of 800 to 1,000 building plans per month. Um, and I think very important, really, for for, if, if for for communities, actually, and I think there's an issue of another relationship between the planning office and communities. And we simply that the district planning office must be seen as a support hub to assist and facilitate small-scale development. Um, some observations. Um, the development trend of providing small-scale rental units is happening despite government. The provision of accommodation is tailor-made in response to local requirements. There's a wide variety of accommodation available. There is an imperative for government to engage with this trend to ensure a better outcome. And, 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 and Andreas made actually reference earlier to the issues of certain externalities. Um, we will contrast the urban case of Kailiche versus Danun. Maybe I will just only make one comment around Danun, where the less sphere approach in the Danun area has resulted in a massive compromise-built environment with issues of public safety, public health structural stability and fire are major concerns. Um, therefore, the argument, authorities had to, uh, uh, has got no choice but to engage with the trend. The private sector financial institutions and ngos are responding to support this important sector contrast with for example the funding availability not based on income but property potential Um, the innovation happening um, within the uh, the private sector needs to uh, uh, also become present within authorities it will be suggested that if the sector is correctly capacitated that it can perform at an, at an industrial scale with major economic, social, and accommodation benefits. Um, I, uh, I think very importantly, if I could share with you the decisions taken by our council recently on, this, on, on, on small-scale rental accommodation, it recognized that small-scale rental units are an important housing sector that can provide affordable rental at scale. It, it agreed to initiate a process to amend the zoning scheme in areas where this form of development should be encouraged to eliminate the need to obtain planning permission. It's actually all streamlining processes and procedures. Uh, it agreed to draw a menu of prototypical building plans for small scale rental units from which an owner could choose and submit for approval in terms of a national building regulations. It agreed to prioritize the approval of small-scale building plans and exempt them from paying building plan fees, all to encourage this strength. The funding of bulk infrastructure improvements in areas where this form development is to be encouraged will need, dis- need further discussion, but it is actually recognized. It, it agreed to establish a list of accredited small-scale local building contractors. It also agreed to establish a list of accredited registered uh, 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 credit providers And lastly, it it agreed to commence with a series of comprehensive workshops in targeted areas to create an awareness uh, of small-scale rental units. Um, We anticipate, or uh, the vision is actually that when we uh, launch these comprehensive workshops, that we will invite actually small-scale local building firms, NGOs, as well as uh, credit providers to accompany us on on, on this outreach program. Then lastly, from an action point of view, In conclusion, a project implementation plan is currently being drafted by a multi-directed team of City to action the council resolution. With that, that's my presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Andreas.
0: Thanks a lot, Charles. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of interest in, um, you know, Cape Town's current approach to small scale rental. Um, And, you know, developments in this sphere so please to the audience post your questions in the Q&A to Charles directly or we also have an open discussion later on where we can um, invite participants to, to raise their questions. And we're now gonna move on to Mr. Jack Kosev and his presentation. The Jack serves in the office of the Premier in Kalteng as one of the leads on the Kalteng provincial government policy initiatives facilitate and promote economic growth and development in Africa's most economically advanced city region with a targeted commitment to focus on enhancing inclusivity of the economy whilst improving its competitiveness. And central to this is the ability to create an enabling environment for driving interventions in the key economic sectors. And these efforts have been organized as a set of apex programs focused on economic acceleration and investment fast tracking which Czech has the operational responsibility to coordinate and track check please um, go
3: ahead with your presentation uh, thanks colleagues i'm i'm going to leave my video off just uh, just because of bandwidth issues i'm hoping that the presentation is visible and i'm going to keep to time as much as possible Okay, so just quickly, the I need to quickly locate this discussion within Ghateng Provincial Governments and the Ghateng City Regions Policy Framework. So the APEX program design that, that, that basically Andreas was just re- referencing was along the lines of the following triangle. So our Growing Ghateng Together uh, strategy or plan of action, really, that the Premier n- announced in full scale in in February was really has a number of different economic aspirations, but you can cluster them according to the following areas. So there's the the work with uh, attracting high growth sectors into Gauteng, which really has to do with our special economic zone network. There's the work on catalytic infrastructure, which unlocks uh, developments that the private sector are already and willing to initiate commercial, residential, industrial, but don't, for example, have the bulk services available to do. And then there is the work on this fits squarely into the township economic revitalization piece that fits into both of those areas because you that part of this is also enabling townships to become much more diversified economies. And then our SEPA 1 million and youth workforce program, which really is about work readiness, work transition, plugging young people in, especially into employment and self employment opportunities, plugs into these other areas. Um, this is just a narrative variant of the apex program i'll I'll distribute a pdf version of this so that the secretariat can distribute so don't worry about nailing down every point if there's (laughs) there's a particular area of interest but effectively we are really here about not only the creating the enabling conditions for infrastructure as a catalyst for district development in a broader sense but bringing opportunity to the many and confronting inequality at the spatial level through township economic revitalization uh, where we are with the township economic revitalization piece, I think it's important just to reflect quickly on how we conceptualize where we where we stand with this. So we announced an SME partnership fund, which was highly ambitious and ran directly into a range of legal and legislative constraints, which we now have to effectively resolve through um, inclusion in our township economic development bill, which I'll I'll come to, come to in a moment. So effectively we are putting down 250 million to catalyze $1 billion in private sector wholesale funding that will go to intermediaries that work with unbanked township-based SMEs. This is a very important consideration in the, the way we are conceptualizing the backyard real estate market. We've got our SME portal that's not strictly relevant to this, except in as much as it's proven on very large construction projects like the Swanee Special Economic Zone, we can directly empower the most... Bottom of the pyramid layer of CIDB grade one to three firms and cluster them for support of large projects, and that will be something that we'd want to be doing in the precincts that we're looking to evolve as part of the backyard methodology. Uh, We also have a taxi economy fund initiative, ties in mainly to the precinct story. I'll come to that in a moment, and our Township Economic Development Act. So the Township Economic Development Act is actually a bigger part of the Township Economic Development policy. I'd ask everyone for the moment to focus not on the questions of reservations for foreign nationals and affirmation of South Africans, which has been a very kind of like headline grabbing piece of this and whether or not that survives the legislation is a matter of consultation. What's definitely very likely to survive. Uh, into the the final bill is this idea of streamlining uh, permission for economic activity to occur in townships and streamlining bylaws through the form of a a combination or uh, municipalities are given a choice to either adopt the draft model bylaw that will accompany the act or to adapt their bylaws so that they meet the act's principles and and really that, that this is under section 14 of the municipal systems act it's a clearly stipulated process but this is probably the most aggressive utilization of it that anyone's tried in democratic south africa so far really the the policy interventions of which the backyard real estate precincts approaches one, work hand in hand with the regulatory interventions, which are all about streamlining the, the bylaws, the regulations, the ordinances that govern how commercial activity in particular is regulated in townships. Um, I, this wouldn't be entirely fair if I didn't mention that GCRO, Gauteng uh, City Region Observatory, has done an extensive amount of work on this, and we probably have some GCRO colleagues in the audience. This is a very useful demonstration of the extent to which backyard dwellings have definitely become a very dominant informal housing form in Gauteng. So all the areas that you see the black clusters demonstrate where you have seen an increase in informal um, backyard dwellings, um, formal and informal backyard dwellings of between 4,000 and 10,000 units. It's a And it's an overall um, increase over this time frame, 2001 to 2016, of something close to 205%. Again, it, there are, it is now the dominant form of informal Dwelling in Khauteng. It accounts for more households, about 23% or so, compared to just informal households that live in, in self-standing shacks. Okay. What can you really do with the this largely informal marketplace? Is something that we often find we have to communicate via visualization. So I'm going to do that very quickly. Effectively, this is a fairly typical, and though this is a Cape Town photo, it's actually, in in karting, the the shacks would be more likely to be around the back, just typically, but it doesn't really matter to the overall principle. What you see is backyard rentals and informal market rates are generally off-grid and single-story. To enable conversion, what you can really do is position in the same floor space, double-story and triple-story, activities that keep keep the rental at around or just slightly above and this is something that our partners such as Inlu and i know almost Stundis in the audience they're very familiar with this dynamic as well once you actually improve the quality people are willing to pay a slightly higher rate without being displaced to a certain extent there is obviously a limit to that but the good the good thing about this is if you can put your residential at height allowing obviously for disability issues, you can then put your commercial at ground level, provide the right to execute commercial activity in that area where the precinct approach becomes critical is if you can do commercial for one. You can do a whole lot line of commercial activities in a single street, and that allows you to actually create a proper township, backyard, real estate market. So how do you do that? Effectively this is what we we've entered into a formal partnership with well the first entity that we're really working with on this is Inlu uh, who are doing this predominantly in Timbisa Mamalodi and certain other parts of Karting but those are the major areas where they've had initial penetration and I'm not going to go through this in ex- in in uh, exhaustive detail suffice to say that the idea that we, we worked on with Inlu works on the notion of a pre-sent development so you, you look at the overall set of backyard upgrades as a portfolio. So it requires a, a variety of different pieces, stakeholder engagement, property management, enterprise development, uh, off-grid alternative building methods, development finance, community development, and all of it really has to be centered around how the public sector can be the enabling platform for it. because. Ultimately, the, the private sector can only go so far in assembling and regulating and allowing presents. Just to give a sense of it, I mean, we're talking to National Treasury and the, the, the banks through Barsa on about 50 million in project prep financing that under under uh, the, the per present that unlocks about 1 billion in project value. So, and that's based on the history of operators like INLU in this kind of space using some very innovative methodologies and there are a, a variety that can coexist. Inlu for example don't do a mortgage they use a notarial tie and the landlord agrees to basically allow inlu to build a structure on the open space and not to build in the open space and all the consequences of non-compliance are attached to the title deed via a notarial tie. The key enablers, and I suppose this is where you've really got to to think through uh, some of the components that fit together into this. So firstly, you need planning instrument alignment, whether that's SDF, whether that's precinct plan, whether that's technical alignment with bylaws, especially re-commercial utilization of, of the ground level. And that's where it ties in with the Township Economic Development Act, which is designed to streamline all those bylaws and allow for the designation of precincts and township high streets, to enable precisely this kind of activity. You do need a level of support with respect to title level blockages and contested and complex legal issues, especially where townships haven't been declared or promulgated. So the role of the local authority where necessary supported by the provincial authority becomes very key here. And obviously, there's tie-ins to national systems like the Deeds Office, et cetera, that have to be considered. And uh, I think the city support program and uh, the the various partners that participated in the the title transfer office pilots in the Western Cape demonstrated some of the the learnings that you need to take into that process. Then working in alignment with CSP, I know Karin's in the audience. We're looking at our first precinct level on an area where Inlu is a partner, that we've signed an, an MOA with to kind of uh, facilitate this, th- this precinct level approach. The focus is on the to be specific precinct and surrounds. Part of the problem here is bulk infrastructure. And we're, I mean, whereas in an area like Lanceria, the Val or the Western District, where we're you've got large scale developments and large scale bulk requirements, there we're doing tax increment financing vehicles with DBSA to unlock bulk financing for, in the case of Lanceria, 850,000 households. There, when you've got that kind of scale, that kind of predictable pipeline of development, you can write all kinds of loan instruments and bond instruments that pay for the bulk. In the case of backyards, it's more complicated because they're interspersed with existing arrangements and often they're in areas that are already overloaded with respect to bulk. What we've consistently considered, and this is another major feature where the precinct approach has to play a role, is you need a level of off-grid, microgrid, micro micro sanitation that can occur across and within a precinct in order to supply the bulk services to the kind of scale that's increasing. Otherwise, you have a very difficult time unless unless you have enough... A voluntary density from from potential landlord hosts to basically bring in new bulk um, at scale, and even that is a lengthy process. the This kind of microgrid off-grid, and it's assisted by the opportunity for municipalities to now now buy from IPPs, do tariff wheeling, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There needs to be big financial instrument alignment so we've had a detailed conversation with just about all the banks via Barsa. and it's very clear that their, their interest in supporting this is at a portfolio level so they want to provide wholesale funding um, possibly through instruments like our township economic development fund um, but but really the really ultimately it doesn't really matter who does the agglomeration but agglomeration is needed you need to diversify the risk and you probably, um, what the banks pretty much conceded is you need intermediaries that can act as last mile guarantors. Um, Indlu or Mustandi, the people that are operating at scale in this area, they do a lot of landlord support. They treat the landlord effectively as an SMME. And and they also do a lot of control over, for example, tenancy management. So in Indlu system, the the, The landlord sets the parameters in lieu selects the tenants and they collect the money from the tenant in order to be able to to recover the portion that they've used as as a loan vehicle to build on the empty space that the landlord has allowed them to turn into a proper dwelling. Uh, Then there's alignment with broader precinct development efforts at township level. So where we're looking at, for example, the commercialization of taxi ranks, one of the provisions that's being tested in the Township Economic Development Act, for example, is a five kilometer zoning overlay that allows uh, expanded commercial development around taxi ranks. But there's also a direct... Partnership Fund was setting up with the DBSA to fund taxi infrastructure, including commercialization of ranks. That fits in quite nicely to what is being planned at the precinct level. At the same time, the idea of localization of supply of alternative building materials, it's a very viable use for some of the township industrial parks we're looking at revitalizing. So it's useful to see these things as part of an overall system. Okay, I'll stop there. I think that's my allotted time, Chair, and I'll deal with any questions via Q&A. Much obliged.
0: Thanks very much, Jack. Also amazing to see how much is going on in Gauteng and the complexity around the better real estate and the multiple stakeholders ranging from government to private sector companies to financial institutions, um, national treasury, et cetera. So I'm sure there are lots of questions also for you in the Q&A and hopefully later on in the open discussions. Um, And it's also a nice transition now from the public sector to another uh, into the private sector, but not blue but BITPROP. So we are pleased to have Ms. Claire de Trevoux with us, who is a director and head architect at BITPROP, which is a social enterprise that seeks to address housing shortages by using a unique funding model to allow private investors to invest in backyard micro-rental units, wherein the property owners are gradually use this upfront investment to earn a supplementary income. And the idea of microdevelopment at the macro scale guides the work of the startup and is soon to transform the real estate sector from below. Claire, the floor is yours.
4: Thank you, Andreas. Um, yeah, hi, so my name is Claire. I am a director and one of the co-founders of Bitprop. We started, um, we came from a number of different backgrounds. <laughs> Um, I was originally in the NGO sector. Um, I worked with Zama, who's going to speak after me. Um, and it was during my time um, working in informal settlement upgrading and in community-driven housing processes that um, we started to notice these these trends and investigate ways of how people were financing um, upgrades, but also how where the gaps for assistance were. So that's kind of where Bitprop, um started and where we came from so i'm just going to run you through um a short presentation just to kind of give you um an idea so um yeah we're bitprop enabling micro de- property development at a macro scale this is our latest development um in Kailicha we're mostly based in Kailicha um the blue house is ours and as you can see there was a another property that went up very soon after this one was completed, um, essentially these are just some of the you know the issues that we're all kind of grappling with: um, mass urban migration, this um, level of substandard houses that's um, coming into our cities across the continent, and also very high property prices, especially in Cape Town, and access to the city. So our long-term address. Uh, uh, short-term goal is to really assist um, micro-property owners um, in developing their, their land and our long-term is to really try and through our business address some of the structural issues that the um, Peruvian economist De Soto um, addresses in his work around property ownership and, and title deeds. So through innovation, new technology and systems thinking, which I guess are all very big buzzwords, <laughs> Bitprop creates wealth and improves income for the bottom of the pyramid by enabling investment into micro property development at a macro scale. All we mean is that we help ho- homeowners to build. Um, so the process we take a homeowner through is we identify a homeowner. We have a um, like an online application system and what we process the homeowner, and then we start a series. So before we even approve that homeowner, we start a series of homeowner education um, where we talk through, you know, what does it mean to be a landlord? And we try to get a feel for that person. Are they um, entrepreneurial? Are they gonna be able to manage tenants? Um, Once the approval process has gone through, we do the regulatory approvals in terms of the design work. Then we build, um, we design, and we construct the units. Once the units are completed, we take, um, similarly to um, Indlu, we take the income directly from the tenants. Um, and we so we manage the project. We manage our um, the cash flow from the tenants. We keep money aside for insurance, for maintenance. Um, we have a bad debt coverage and obviously an administration fee. And um, what we pro Um, piloting at the moment is then the home, uh, the capital amount is taken over by a financial institution um, like a bank or even um, like an organization like iBuild or Umustandi um, and it becomes a traditional homeowner, um, a home loan with the homeowner and then the homeowner settles with Britprop Um, and it's just a way for us to recycle our capital a lot faster rather than getting caught in a 10-year contract with the homeowner. Um, So this was one of our our projects, Norma Wisa's property. Um, It's in a place called Elita Park. um, And this is what it looked afterwards. Uh, We've built six, we've built for six land owners or property owners um, in the last year. And every time what we really try to do is we really try to set ourselves apart through creating innovative spaces and um, spaces and designs that kind of set themselves apart from other um, units on the market. Um, We obviously are looking at creating a new asset class because we need this business to be profitable and and for investors to look at investing in it um, favorably. Um, We really focus on scale and replicability (laughs) because we obviously want to be able to, to do this much faster um, to provide better quality houses. Um, and so we have to be able to do that through having a stand plan. Um, we're obviously looking to create positive social, social impact. We're partnering with other organizations to create new technologies that help with tenant management and homeowner um, maintenance, or well, maintenance of the property. Um, we look very carefully at, at owner selection. We focus a lot on tenant satisfaction um, and routes to markets for us and for um, investors, and then unlocking hidden capital. So by enabling um, homeowners who may not have been able to access formal finance um, through using Bidprop as a bridging type of finance, they're able to access the, the capital that is locked in their land. Um, And obviously for our homeowners, it's a, it's a massive um, impact. Um, We really focus on um, education around what does it mean to be a property manager? What does it mean to be entrepreneurial? But we also focus on our contractors um, and how we can assist them to grow their business um, through developing, development. And then basically this is Kind of just how how we work, um, in terms of the flow of the capital, mm, and then just some nice pictures of what the units look like. So they're small units. I guess some people could call them micro units, but they're um, they're all sort of fully finished in terms of tiling. They have ceilings. They're painted. Every unit has its own. Um, Prepaid meter electric meter and um, we focus on providing um, ensuite bathrooms in all of our units Um we recently did a kind of a show unit, which is this this unit that you can see here, where we take. Um, we have one of our, our employees lives in this unit and we take people who want to see the developments out. Um, and we also allow new tenants or potential tenants or potential homeowners to come here to see what they're getting and what we're really trying to focus on is um, spaces that are tight but efficient um, in terms of being able to get in like separate areas like lounge little kitchen um, and bedroom areas Um, and with COVID this year um, in the designs going forward we've obviously also tried to look at how we can provide tenants with um, units that allow them to comfortably work from home. Um, some of the key learnings from this over the last uh, almost two years now is we have to be um, a lot more careful in our homeowner selection and and what we look for when we we start engaging with homeowners, um, asking a number of of critical questions. Obviously, the homeowner lives on the property and has direct access to the tenant, and so we rely on a really good relationship between us and the homeowner um, to ensure that the tenants pay us directly, um, and that that um, flow of money doesn't get interrupted or um, <laughs> renegotiated. Um, we've learned some very big construction lessons. Um, I'm I'm an architect by trade. Um, and the business partners are businessmen, and so there was often a lot of, it has to be cheaper, it has to be cheaper, but we learned at what cost um, cutting down um, construction costs can come at, um, and also just in terms of really um, understanding that, you know, if we're going to do this at scale, if we bring a better quality to to the market, um, there'll be a demand, an overall demand for higher quality units, and hopefully that. Has sort of a knock-on effect within the the development space um, of these units in Kailicha and then um, some tenant management lessons in terms of how do you select a tenant, um, or how do you how do you enable the homeowner to select tenants? Um, how do you enable the homeowner to um, deal with conflicts? Um, there was an issue on one of the sites and they said, no, you must come and evict. So we rather sort of had to <laughs> talk the homeowner through the issues and and really try and understand what um, what we needed to do to be able to empower her to be able to evict that person and or ask that person to leave um, in a way that she didn't feel threatened by him. Um, Oh, I'm missing a slide, whoops. Okay, I'll just exit out of here and then you can see my face. Um. So I think for us, a really big kind of learning and something that is emerging the more we do this work is that yes, um, like Andrea said in the beginning, we need a lot of assistance in terms of um, processes, around applications um, and what Jack mentioned around um, being able to have a precinct approach we obviously need um, we need to be able to work with the local planning municipal district around zoning regulations and how do we how do we start to look at um, mixed use zoning so that these spaces especially along main roads within kailicha and main um, transport um, routes Become activated edges rather than taking advantage of being able to build up the boundary, and then having dead, dead blank walls along some of our major transport routes through Kailicha So that's one of the big things that we're trying to focus on um, in terms of engaging with with other levels of government. Um, but for us. We see this as an opportunity for. There's lots of. We're early stage players. um Indlu Umastandi, Ibold. We've all got into this game at a really early stage, and we're proving that the private sector um, and innovative um, finance institutions can support um, private development. The houses are going to go up. The flats are going to continue to go up. And so, what we really need to push from well where we really need government assisting assistance is in improving bulk infrastructure, whether that's through um, infrastructure upgrades or through kind of green alternative solutions, but then also to really focus on the on the public space um, around how you know if we're seeing this rise, like Charles outlined in um, in units and residential units, Are we we doing enough to ensure that there are enough creches? Um, Are we doing enough to ensure that the parks are at an acceptable rate for children in the area? Um, Focusing on roads and simple things like pavements, access to public transport, so that these neighborhoods don't just become a densified version of RDP dormitory neighborhoods, but rather that they start to function as livable, multi-use precincts, like Jack was saying. So, yeah, that's from me. Um, I think my time is up. Um, Yeah, and I'll take any questions in the the Q&A. Thanks, Andreas.
0: Thank you very much, Claire. Um, I think it's fascinating um, to see what what, uh, Bitrop has done so far. And also, you know, really interesting to hear you speaking about the lessons. I think we all appreciate that uh, you and the other companies um, are new you, you know in the sector they are trying innovative approaches experimenting with things um, you highlighted also the key areas that will require more reform and intervention um, but thanks very much for for doing so we now go to Mr. Sama Nguatu, who is a program manager at the development action group which is probably one of the most long-standing and active ngos in the housing and urban development sphere in south africa zama is also project manager at dex contractor and developer academy program which aims to improve and enhance the capability of emerging contractors and builders and he has worked with local entrepreneurs and developers um, in cape town for many years and uh, we really look forward to your input now
5: Thank you, Andres. Can you see my presentation? Yes. Okay. Uh, thanks a lot, and uh, afternoon, everyone. Uh, uh, thank you to HSRC for giving us this opportunity. I think uh, t- uh, this afternoon I'm going to share the journey that we have gone through via the Contractor and Developer Academy, a program within DEC that was established to support and capacitate emerging construction companies, but also emerging developers towards the establishment of affordable rental units. I think it's a program that is uh, responding to the demand that is on the ground. I'm trying now to, okay. I I think uh, I won't say much in terms of the context. Now, I think uh, that will be covered or it has been covered. I think uh, the different housing programs that are there are are leaving a majority of South Africans stranded. For example, there's an RDP type of programs and there's like uh, uh, programs that are financed by the banks which is ownership, and yes, there's uh, rental programs like the CRUs and social housing programs. But the majority of South Africans are not qualifying in those programs. Hence, I think uh, in the last three years or so, we saw this gap being taken by private sector individuals. Yes, a lot is happening, some good and bad. If you look at this picture on my left. That's, that is a development that took place in Danone. I think uh, no one wants to talk about Danone. I think that was mentioned by Charles. But if you look at this particular development, it's in Later Park, closer to the train station. Unfortunately, the trains are not uh, op- in operation now, but it's closer to the train station in Later Park. And it has got 39 rental units, combination of, uh, uh, what is it? Stalls and uh, housing units or rental units. And that building was done by a private developer within building regulations and without any support from government. The support will be in the form of uh, the facilitation of uh, 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 building plans. And some of these developments, for example, this one, when we spoke to her, I think last year, she was saying this is her 10th development in Litapak, and she's not o- owing any bank. See, she did this through stock fails, savings, and some little bit of personal loans somewhere there. But for me, it's something that is driven by the communities themselves. It's something that is driven by the individuals. And we're saying where, who, and what other stakeholders can do to support this particular uh, sector. Yes, for example, I think Charles has mentioned this, the progressiveness of the planning district in Kailita. But the question is, what is happening in other districts within the city of Cape Town? Then I think uh, this is the support that we give as the CDA. I spoke about supporting emerging developers. Someone will come knocking to our doors and he will say to us, I've got a space in my yard. Then what we'll do is, as a first stage is what we call an initiation stage whereby we'll go and visit the site, uh, do site analysis, look at uh, some of the documentation that will be needed at a, at a later stage, and do draft plans, and do building cost estimates. To say, for example, in this particular yard, you can yield four units, and you need 500,000. we we'll check whether the person has got a title deed or not. Once everything is in place, not everyone will pass that stage. Then there's what we call the facilitation stage, whereby We link these uh, individuals to different finance institutions. For example, we work with Umastan, with BitProp, with iBuild, and there's new now that are coming into the sector. And we know their criteria. There's different criteria because the emerging developers are also different. And then we facilitate the appointment of architects, engineers, and also we link the homeowner to an emerging construction company. Then when it comes to implementation stage, sorry, when it comes to the implementation stage, that's where now we make sure that the house is enrolled with NHPRC. We are there, City of Cape Town inspectors are in place. And then capacity building stage. That's where I think someone asked about the acceptance of some of these uh, developments. We'll do uh, workshops around financial literacy. Uh, lease agreements, a lease, like uh, a will, tenant management, property management, and making sure that even from the implementation stage, the streets where these projects are gonna be built, at least the street committee knows that there's this development happening so that if there's uh, uh, opportunities for the youngsters within the street in terms of the building uh, process, they can also benefit. And I think that assists Uh, the homeowner to make sure that the building is accepted. If you look at uh, some of the work that we're doing now currently, there's this building, it's in Mfuleni, it's going to yield 15 rental units, there's building plans in place, and the building is enrolled with NHVRC. And on top of that building, that is in Mfuleni, that is going to yield 15 rental units, we are working with other seven developers and the developments are at different stages. And I think uh, I'll say by maybe June next year, we'll be in a position to complete all those eight uh, projects and they will yield a total of 121 rental units affordable in different areas of uh, the city of Cape Town. There's developers we're working with uh, in Kailita, in Mfuleni, in Delft, in Glyfontaine, in Mandalay. So the demand is there. And then someone spoke about the support to these developers. Ukle uh, was just saying he's from an architectural background. Uh, At varsity, I studied politics, and some of the developers are not coming from the built environment uh, field. How do we make sure that we capacitate them so that they can better understand the sector? And I think uh, the demand is growing. For example, between uh, I'll say October last year. And now, we did what we call information sessions in Langa, in Delft, in Kailicha, whereby a group of 30 developers will come and will expose them to the industry and will also assist them to meet some of the requirements in terms of finance, in terms of registration with NHPRC and making sure that the building plans are approved, but also making sure that we don't contribute to what happens in Danoon. And then also around the support to the developers. If you look there on my right, we started a Facebook page last year called Affordable Places to Rent in Cape Town. That's where I think within that page, I've got more than 14,500 members. That's where individual landlords, individual tenants will post their messages to say, I'm looking for a place to stay in Koboletu And the tenant will go as far as saying, this is the amount I can afford. And the landlords will also post their openings in their different developments free of charge. And as DAG, we are managing that particular uh, Facebook page. I think uh, I spoke about the developers. I think there is a need. I think uh, the city of Ketan is talking about this, a need for fully fledged construction companies who will support uh, the development of these units? For example, I think Uclaire mentioned that particular development in Lita Park. This development was done in partnership with Kohlheer Quality Projects. Kohlheer Quality Projects is a product of their mentorship programs. We started to work with him back in 2011 when we are doing RTP houses or BNG houses in Kailicha. By then, he was he didn't he didn't have a CITB registration. But fast forward now, he's CIDB rating four, and he has got more than 15 permanent staff members. And within the CDA, how do we start to have a pool of emerging developers? For example, there's also Shlumamandambazana that we're going to be starting a project in two projects in Kailita as part of the CDA work. And how do we start to support the emerging contractors also so that When projects come, they can support uh, sustainable uh, implementation of affordable housing in in this particular sector. And then I think, uh, what is it that we are calling for from different actors? For example, a lot has been done is said in terms of some of the supports that can come from the city of Cape Town, but you are saying there's a need for all the spheres of government to embrace and to support the creativity that is being driven by individuals. I think there's issues around bulk infrastructure. What role can national government play in terms of maybe municipal infrastructure grant to support the improvement of bulk infrastructure in some of the areas that will be identified? I think is access to technical expertise, architects, engineers, how do we make sure that there's a pool? of architects and engineers who support the development of this particular sector? How do we make sure that we standardize the approach in all planning districts? For example, everyone is mentioning Kailisha district. What about Platteklouf district? What about uh, goodwood district? How do we make sure that the interpretation is standardized? For example, I think there's issues around title deeds. We know that the backlog is from the side of government. But then what else? can we recognize if the title date is not there? Then I think uh, I spoke about this forward planning and bulk, bulk infrastructure improvements. I think uh, the other one is around uh, redefining the role of NHPRC. I won't say much, but I think uh, there is a need because the, the approach, the regulations that are there within NHPRC are not supportive of this particular sector. And then I think uh, maybe a take home, I think uh, unlocking the private sector finance, for example, there's the bid crops, the build, almost done. But what about the traditional banks? What role are they playing? I won't mention names who so have been engaging with our traditional banks for the past two years. There's no appetite how do we make sure that they get involved? Yes, they will give someone a personal loan, but you are saying, how do we make sure that there's customized customized packages that talk to the real needs? For example, we've got homeowner developers, someone who's saying I benefited from the RTP type of a house, I just need to build the flats once in my backyard. But there are those seasoned uh, developers who are saying I've got, five developments are now under my belt already. I need to develop more. And there's, there's a need for different finance packages for those two for different types of developers. And then I think our development of value chain needs to be, su- to be supported, for example, uh, professionals. Some of the professionals don't understand the sector. How to make sure that there's uh, professionals out there who are supportive of this particular sector I think I spoke about the role of emerging, construct- of, of emerging contractors. We don't want what happened during the PHPS whereby contractors will just do uh, say safety work and they will demand money. How do we make sure that we support the growth of the emerging construction companies so that they can build quality rental stock? And then lastly, material suppliers. I think there is a role for material suppliers. I think uh, when it comes to the microdevelopers themselves, I think uh, property management, tenant management, we don't want a situation whereby we support someone and he mistreats the, or she mistreats the tenants. So how do we, and unfortunately, I think uh, the city of Cape Town has also tried, the sector is not coordinated. The emerging developers are operating as individuals. How do we also manage, how to also start to encourage them to say, look, emerging developers, you are playing a a, a crucial role in the sector. Organize yourselves so that you can better engage with with governments. And then uh, I think uh, there's networks that are also needed. For example, I think uh, there's uh, the Western Cape Property Developers Forum led by Dion. And he has been saying to us, we are willing to assist the emerging developers, but then they are not organized. So how do how do they start to organize themselves so that they can lobby and get support from different avenues, for example, finance, uh, government engagement with the city of Cape Town, the new approach that has been proposed by the city of Cape Town, how do they start to engage with that? And then I think uh, lastly from me, I think, uh, If you look at those different two pictures, the taxi industry, I think it started way in the 60s, and government by that time was shy to get involved. And this is what we see now in the taxi industry. And I think uh, I always say, this is the road less traveled. How do we start to date our hands now? There's an opportunity for us to talk, to engage, uh, government is willing to engage private sector companies. The banks should also come to the party. Uh, uh, what is it? Emerging developers themselves should come to the party because without that coordination, the sector now is under threat. For example, the issue around extortions in Kailicha. How do we start to address some of those as a collective? Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Dama, for his really on-the-ground insights into the activities and also shows what is actually possible you know with the right support on the ground not just in terms of developing um, higher quality structures and formalizing them but also you know developing entrepreneurs and growing enterprises Um, it was also really interesting to hear your recommendations for policy and the other important role of banks and and stakeholders um, which brings us nicely to the final presentation by Mr. Neville Cheney. We're very grateful to have him on the panel as well. Mr. Neville Cheney is the Deputy Director General, Strategy and Planning in the National Department of Human Settlements. He's an attorney by profession and has many years of experience working in government and the private sector. Among others for the Housing Housing Department as head of Housing for Echolene Metro, Standard Bank and the Housing Development Agency and he will hopefully provide us with a national view of the backyard real estate sector. Over to you, Neville. Uh,
6: thank you, Andres. Uh, afternoon to everyone and just, let me just acknowledge the work that's been done. It's really been, I suppose it's, it's probably heartwarming and, 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 and gratifying that this kind of work is being done, notwithstanding governments, uh, uh, I suppose, indifference. <clears throat> I, I promised, uh, Ivan, what I'll do is I'll just indicate clearly, I'll just give you a, a, an overview of where we act as the National Department, particularly in relation to the rental strategy and the rental policy. So what what, what we are doing is reviewing the, the rental strategy and the policy. Uh, and obviously, what we have identified, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a major shortcoming, and I think most of you will realize, and it's probably one of the things that has driven uh, and motivated the work that's been done, is that the policy at the moment does not cater for persons earning less than 7000 Uh I think, I think what, what the, the, the last figure we had was that in relation to the regulated sect- sector, which is the social and uh, social rental housing sector, caters only for 1%. But the huge substantial amount of households who require rental fall in that lower income and and policies that we've put in place the CRUs uh, some of the other uh, uh, processes have not really yielded uh, uh, any substantial gains and I suppose what's been done here is 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 showing the way that 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 we need to focus on that i mean i think uh in relation to COVID, uh it's also demonstrated the fact and i think from 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 minister's point of view Mrs. Susulu's point of view she's asked us to look at a solution around this now there's just a couple of things and i think the the, the focus is obviously the policy and i think that policy needs to address one of the key issues which we've identified together with the NHFC now the Human Settlements Development Bank is extending the financial and the grant scheme, uh, particularly to allow for a bigger pool of funding, uh, and, and the reason and the reason we're saying that is obvious. You've heard, you've heard. I mean, I, I think the case for 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 us, as as the national department together with the provinces and, and municipalities to get involved is there. I mean, I'm, I don't think we 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 need to to debate that issue. Uh, What we need to do is to now look at how do we reconfigure the current social grants, uh, uh, the the, the grants that we provide. And one of the things that we need to ask, for example, and which we've asked, for example, the Social Housing Regulatory Authority, is that what prevents the uh, current CCG grant, the social housing rental grant, to be allowed or be to be made available to households who require it because what's the difference and the issue was yes you know it's institutional it's entity approach but the fact of the matter is that we are not meeting the demand and if we're not meeting the demand we've got to relook at that that financial configuration and i think the what we want to be able to do as the department is not stifle any of the work that's been done or the initiatives that are but perhaps maybe look at a way that initiates and innovates and allows for a upscaling within as was indicated by charles a regulated environment uh, but that regulated environment must not also again stifle what's been happening so 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 the focus is obviously on 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 the, on the upscaling of the rental uh, Grant facilities and funding facilities. So, so one of the directives we issued to uh, via, via red data from 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 NHSC is to is to look and 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 understand better with INLU uh, what are some of their uh, innovations that can be expanded across the across the board. Uh, the second part in relation to the funding that has come up is the issue around the question of the bulk infrastructure. Now that's an issue that, that we've taken up with, with National Treasury and it and it focuses, particularly in the in the in the in the metropolitan municipalities, is that there is a that there is a clearly there's a need to reposition how we allocate uh, funding for infrastructure, because in many respects it's not it's not it's not going where it's required. So 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 that's 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 the other aspect. And then the last point just on the infrastructure issue and 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 the planning is that there's obviously, and I think Zama's raised the issue, there's a, there's, a, there's a there's a there's a mindset shift required from particularly municipal officials and the municipal sphere, particularly in relation to a shift from Compliance-based planning practice to a more developmental-based uh, uh, practice, because because some of the constraints that we find, particularly in relation of, of, to this, is 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 those tensions. Uh, just just to indicate, I mean, I think what we need to perhaps maybe recognise and acknowledge is that in Sowetu for example, under Mayor Tao's uh, when he was. Uh, MMC for Finance and Economic Development, we did pilot this in Zola and Orlando. Uh, and, 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 that po- and that program came to a, a standstill as a result of some of the regulatory uh, conflicts that occurred between tenants and, 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 uh, and uh, the landlord. Thank you.
0: Thanks a lot, Neville, for you know, telling us what's currently happening at the national level especially with regard to funding and regulations and bulk infrastructure. Um, I'm now going to hand over to Ivan, who is going to lead the the open discussion and then the reflection at uh, at the end. Uh, Thanks very much,
1: Andreas. What I'm going to try and do is to ask a couple of questions of each of the speakers. Um, So, And I'll take it in the order in which they presented. So Charles, a couple of points for you. And actually, just before I I start that, it seems to me that what's what's emerged, we've had a really interesting set of uh, presentations. This is a very, very important conversation. And what I really appreciate is this diversity of perspectives that we've heard from the sort of bottom up, um, helping individual homeowners and developers, builders to uh, increase their skills to the uh, strategic perspective of what the government needs to do to enable and support this activity. So I think all, all, all the questions i am going to try and couch in relation to, you know, how do we try to improve the, in the jargon, the authorizing environment, the wider system, the rules and procedures that uh, regulate, that con- constrain, that uh, affect what happens on the ground. How do we improve that system Uh, and at the same time, strengthen uh, work on the ground, the sort of bottom up practical, the experimentation, the the real dynamism that I think we're seeing evidence of because we need to work at both of those levels to uh, improve the system, uh, but also to enable and support uh, individuals uh, on the ground who are doing this So the questions, Charles, two questions to you. The first one, I think we're all really struck by this contrast between uh, Kailicha and Dunun. The obvious question is is how the city um, operates with these two worlds in in the same municipality. But underlying that, I think is a question about, if you think about what makes the difference between the chaos, I can't remember the exact word you used to describe the but basically a kind of laissez-faire, a a very poorly regulated environment of enormous pressure, uh, enormous dynamism. Um, What makes that uh, environment different from the Kailiča environment? And therefore, what should the municipality be doing to try and uh, prevent, protect, um, um, stop some of the real negative uh, effects we see in Danun and support some of the positive, more positive things um, that we're seeing in, in Kailica. What, what are the critical interventions? Because I think that what we're all, uh, I think understanding uh, today is that this is a complex environment. There are lots of different variables and issues that need to be addressed here. So I think for you, that's one, the first question. What, what, what are the critical steps that the city needs to take to try and prevent the sort of the scenario and try and strengthen the Kailicha scenario, and then the second point I think uh, surrounds how the city moves forward on this agenda in terms of um, key priority actions across the city. You know, is should the city be targeting particular areas within the city? Should it be targeting even within the Kailicha targeting particular zones? Uh, taking into account the kind of precinct thinking that uh, Jack Gossef was was talking about and the impact on bulk. Presumably there are some areas where the positive possibilities are greater than in other areas. Um, And so just to tack on a third question uh, to you, Charles, several questions in the the Q and A were asking about the risks to the city of being more flexible around the rules and procedures being more supportive and and you know to what extent the city um, is, is has an appetite to take on these risks which could backfire I suppose if things go, go badly wrong. Um, so why did you start with that and I'll move on to to, to the next speaker Charles. Are you there Charles? Can you put your mic on?
2: Uh, Ivan, thanks very much for those questions. Uh, I would like to respond as follows. Uh, really, um uh, if the contrast between the Danun and Kaya uh, environments uh it, it basically goes back under what systems those areas actually have come about. And 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 the Danun scenario is a, is a, is a scenario who came actually about under what we refer to as Spanish as lefty. And lefty had certain conditions imposed, for example, that no building plans were required for structures in those areas. And I always actually have subs, uh, subscribed to those areas as I refer to as areas where there's no government presence. And I think what we are seeing in the Dunoon scenario is exactly that. Uh, let, let me say this, the city is, is, is currently taking serious steps to, 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 to try to deal with actually that situation, but it is a, quite a complex situation. I think if we talk about actually the Kailiche and other areas of the city, I think in terms of the council resolution, and I think maybe that is actually the correct step, is actually to identify areas where we would like to encourage uh, this form of development and then actually uh, change the zoning scheme to enable that to happen uh, by changing actually, or or by by not actually then actually having to deal with planning permission. Obviously, we would like to do to do that in 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 um, in liaison with actually those communities. Um, I like actually the whole idea of a precinct-based approach. Um, I, I think maybe uh, it, it's a question of. Also, yeah. If, if you simply say we need to enable this to happen, uh, perhaps actually the, I sometimes call it the niceties, and I think it's a very important niceties. We need also to deal with. Uh, but 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 if if we look at uh, um, the approaches, and I really I I, I want to uh, to complement uh, the if, if if I look at the current financial um, uh, systems which enables this to happen, and their responsible approaches by listening to clear in terms of the care they take in um, in in actually scrutinize in terms of actually uh, having different uh, planning scenarios I, I think that that is the approach with the city and the private sector and ngos needs to take hands actually in fact to bring about a better actually built environment i believe in fact there is an opportunity in in in, in this program uh, the through the development to bring about actually a a, a a a better built environment and i think the city also in terms of making uh suggestions along the line that we would like to to create pre-approved building plans that indicates where we would like to go from a from a quality development control uh environment uh, we 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 we, we I don't want to say we understand necessarily, but I think really the need to be able uh, uh, to get quick decisions and quick approvals. I, I think that both are the requirements, specifically when you deal with the small scale um, uh, rental uh, uh, developers. Um, I, I think you've, you've raised actually a very important issue is this, uh, is this approach of do we do we promote it initially in specific areas or do we need to cast the net as wide as possible i was involved uh, in discussions recently with ann bernstein and 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 they made the point that maybe one needs to cast the net as wide as possible but um, uh, and i'm very careful in terms of what i'm simply saying sometimes actually you need to sell an approach to politicians and maybe this is actually step one where we think that we could, have, uh, we could uh, sell a specific approach uh, by maybe currently limiting it in areas where it is already happening. So one is just reinforcing existing trends. But I think there's a big argument to be made, uh, in fact, to have it rolled out across the city. Um, and, and I think the, the issues of the, the issues of risk and a number you and a number of people actually have referred to, uh, I just wanted to say we're not irresponsible. Um, I think these structures, if you look at the, the many structures which actually have been uh, portrayed here this, this afternoon, it's it's not complicated um, structures. Um, so with experienced plans examiners, one actually can get actually a big turn around um, in terms of responding actually to to the market um, requirements. Um, Ivan, mean, I don't know whether I have uh, uh, um, uh, dealt with the kind of issues uh, you've raised. Thank you. No, that's excellent.
1: Uh, thanks very much, Charles. Very, very helpful. Um, and it's good to hear that uh, the city is taking the situation in Danoon uh, very seriously. Um, Jack, over to you now. Uh, Charles used the phrase Uh, selling an approach to politicians. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I don't know whether I'm misrepresenting what you said, but it sounded to me like, you know, it was very much the grand scheme. Those those beautiful diagrams, that strategic thinking, uh, identifying all the dimensions of this and trying to get all the pillars in place to enable scale. You were talking Mm -hmm. scale and very, very ambitious. Uh, and, and uh, very impressive uh, and laudable, that kind of thinking, because the problem is big and it needs a, a big solution. But I suppose the question is whether or not um, it, it's consistent or whether how that squares with what we've also heard today around the need for experimentation, the need for practical problem solving, the need to get started on the ground, the need to organize chaotic Uh, situation at the moment of individuals doing things in a very ad hoc uh, piecemeal way. The need need basically to get our hands dirty, right? With on the ground working, practical problem solving, learning by doing um, and and incremental uh, improvements in in rules and procedures to, um, to really understand this dynamic, right? and to build credibility and trust with the communities we're working in. I mean, how do you, is, it, is it unfair to, to say that, you know, you're focusing perhaps uh, uh, hugely on this on the wider system and less around the kind of practical, let's get started type of thinking. Talk
3: us through a little it, bit about that dilemma and the balance no, no, between no, no getting the right. system right, yeah. No, no, it's, it's only unfair to the extent that the two aren't mutually exclusive. So we are we're directly learning from people such as InLu. I mean, I, I see Werner and Calaide, for example, are from, from the INLU team are part of the audience today, and they they, they can probably also type some <laughs> comments in the chat. What we're seeing at the moment is a significant amount of private sector activity at multiple levels, formal and informal, that is doing exactly what you're what you're talking about. It's it's doing the experimentation, but it's hit hitting up against barrier to scale, which is that you need let's talk about three areas let's talk about the 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 zoning and the bylaw and the regulatory let's talk about the financing and let's talk about the kind of community organization and stakeholder management piece so starting with the bylaws and the regulatory there's one of the reasons that I flagged the Township economic development bill is because this is one of its major areas of concern and consideration is the fact that we, we do have a series of bylaw regimes that are inconsistent across a range of different Township contexts uh, in many cases are inappropriately drafted for the constituencies they govern and in some cases they just haven't been repealed because they haven't. Or in some cases, there's, there's various interest groups that keep things the way they are. Either way, you've got uh, a regime in the townships of Gauteng that by and large is neither logical nor enforced. And and from the from the point of view of the regulatory side, obviously you can do big, big regulatory change, but if you, as anyone who's ever worked for a city will tell you, if you really want to focus your attentions, you've got to really battle test some of the logic at precinct level. And, um, and precinct, by the way, in, under Spluma's kind of hierarchy of plans can be quite large. And if you if you look at some of the, the precinct size scales you're talking about, you could be talking almost small town size if you were discussing things at a European scale, for example. So so developing a precinct like Timbisa or a large scale set of interlocking precincts in Alexandra, Soweto, um, Hammanskral, et cetera, in Gauteng, is going to really... Provide for an opportunity to battle test some of that regulatory reform, even though the Township Economic Development Bill is doing a bigger version of that. Uh, from a legislative and, and regulation change point of view. The, the, the bottom line and why you need precedent on the regulatory side is because it's going to be much easier to then align the planning instruments uh, to what you need to do, including the availability of bulk. Because as the colleagues are, are I mean, we've mentioned bulk only liminally, and, and I mean, some people really jumped on that point. And I think it, it is a very, very important consideration because you can't be uh, cr- creating new new categories and layers of more inclusive formality if the bulk doesn't exist to provide for that that formality to exist and but otherwise you're just um, creating even more of a densification problem if you anyone who spent any meaningful amount And it's that, that informal densification is happening because people are appending themselves to the urban form in the most um, affordable way possible. And that is going to be via these backyard attachments in the main. That, so, if you don't create a precinct view and you can't drive bulk improvements at a precinct level, I mean, my question then goes back to you How else do you create? Um, you know meaningful bulk supply you can't do it for a single household not unless everything is off-grid you can only do and and even from the from the perspective of a, a cluster of households it's not going to be economically feasible to do something like a off-grid or microgrid electrical or sewerage installation for two homes you, you're going to need to do it for more than that so drives for portfolio consideration leads you to the second point which is the financing so the, the colleagues have mentioned, and I think you're hearing the frustration from especially the nonprofit operators around how they struggle to get meaningful finance to get, to get there. And Barca gave us, um, and the banks gave us a very straightforward answer. They're happy to do the wholesale financing, but somebody has got to de-risk the portfolios. And the and the truth of the matter is if you're the only way to really do that is at a portfolio scale. Portfolio scale probably requires precinct or it requires portfolio in multiple other sections, which so you know, an operation like Umastundi, for example, that is looking at individual properties in made in multiple locations, portfolio doesn't all have to be in the same place. Fair enough. But I think we've agreed with INLU and, and some of the other partners that is logic in the portfolio approach. For the for the kind of finance financial architecture that you're putting in place, if you are in the bold for. The, the landlord, where you, so, which can be important because, I mean, there were some questions on the Q&A about the ability of individual uh, you know, landlords to survive a, a basic credit process. The truth is most won't. They don't have enough of a banking history. The asset doesn't have necessarily the kind of realized market value that a bank can happily use as collateral for a low enough you know, lending instrument. You probably wind up with very high interest rates to compensate for the loss of um you know for potential revenue loss which is the the classic way that lending happens in south africa to the sme sector and isn't sustainable because it's it, what it presumes is that half the money won't come back and therefore you charge the half that do pay you um almost usur- usurious Mashanisa level fees in order to make up for the half that don't that's not a sustainable model so the financing piece does require agglomeration and bigger pieces. Inlu, Umastandi, various others have found, have managed to get financing into the sector, have managed to get banks to put money behind what they do. But to get real scale scale rates that go into the sector, you're gonna to have to also teach the financial system what the returns look like. And that once again requires a level of agglomeration and scale. Thirdly, it's the community organizing. Now, the, the townships can be chaotic, because they, as I said, the, the regulatory instruments often are neither sensible nor enforced, which is a, a very real problem that comes up. But the, the, the notion of what communities will and won't get behind, I think one has to be careful about drawing broad brush statements about that. You've got to, the communities are remarkably heterogeneous in what they will and won't consider you know uh, acceptable standards and we've got to also be honest that not everyone who claims to speak for a community or on behalf of a community has legitimacy to do so in the end these things are, devi- de- are defined by the lived experience of the people that constitute these spaces so it's got to be a voluntary adoption scenario um however the same way that in you know the example we've often used in our discussions with Indlu is the way that um Fiber to the home was originally rolled out in suburbs it it also had a kind of scale requirement to trigger and effectively the way that scale requirement was achieved is communities that really wanted fiber to the home kind of put their hands up and says you know 50 60 percent of us would buy it if you guys you know, pay for the way leaves, lay the cable, lay out the structure, etc. We're ready to go. You can think of something similar as we engage communities in the context of precincts. But the, the obviously, you've also got to then bear in mind where the logical high streets are. In a lot of townships, they're self-revealed because they're where the informal businesses already happen. So you've got an almost implicit kind of revealed preference thing going on. But in a lot of other cases, it's, it's going to be a bit of a mixed bag. So the, I think the, the, the idea of using public authorities as the conduit, especially, um, you know, the, the municipal structures to consult on where the precincts can go and using precinct plans in a more inclusive, empowered way. I think is one way that we're going to be able to get that logic going and obviously you've got to create mechanisms for community consultation that don't illegitimately empower gatekeepers but also you know do actually meaningfully take into account the the concerns of people who for example if a large number of people in the area don't want to live next to a nightclub district and it is an implicit nightclub district there's some rights balancing that has to be done and that's inevitable no matter how much you rationalize your zoning rules so I think that the, but it's easier to do at a precinct level because people understand the value so if you say listen this is going to mean we can improve the surge situation we can improve the electricity situation we'll, we'll knock out the blackouts we'll stop the surge flowing in the streets we can go after the rats etc etc it starts the, the communities can respond to value proposition individuals are rational communities can have collective rationality and i think that's a bit easier to discuss at a precinct level than it is at like say a metro level or an in individual household level where in effect you're just becoming this kind of ombudsman for battles between neighbors which is not really the most effective way for government to spend its time would be my view <laughs> thanks Both.
1: that's great that's really interesting uh, thanks very much jack um so this very strong case being made therefore for, for <clears throat> precinct approach to this to get scale to get coherence to get community buy-in to do some of the negotiations required to uh, overcome uh, frictions between between neighbors and so on Um, that seems to make a lot of sense uh, and it clearly requires a kind of community organization uh, effort there on the ground working with community to 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 get these uh, discussions uh, going Um, let's move on to to Claire now Claire uh, so um Thank you very much uh, for your fascinating insights into your real practical experience in Kailicha. I think the first question that occurred to me um, was: uh, you know, are you cherry picking? Putting it very bluntly, you know, you talked about selectivity, about homeowners being careful about tenants and so on. I suppose that that raises the obvious question: that that, um, you know, you you're coming in, you're one of the few that are doing this, uh, and therefore you're checking, you're, you're you're picking the the low-hanging fruit, um, so that raises questions about scale. You know, are you just the sort of cream of the crop? Is it always going to be small-scale and aimed at the at the easiest uh, targets? What is the, what's the way forward in terms of expanding this? What's the thinking of of Bitproc about about that? And related question to that is, uh, in the chat, there was a question about: Do the all the six properties have title deeds? All the homeowners, for example, are they? Is all of this legitimate, um, or have you also taken on some of the challenges of getting uh, title deeds for for homeowners? Could you help with those kinds of obstacles, or or is that not not within your your sphere of of work? Um, Could you give uh, people a sense of the rent levels you charge, uh, that are charged in the properties? And a related question around the, the, the financing. Uh, there was a question about government subsidies it seems to me that you would be a good person to ask whether or not you could contemplate and would uh, appreciate the, some sort of government subsidy in this area perhaps to keep down rents or to um, uh, reduce costs for for yourselves what, what how would you handle that or would you prefer uh, you know not not to get in into that area because of the rules and, and strings attached Uh, which inevitably go with government subsidy what's what's your view on that
4: um sure thanks for that Ivan um so I'm going to answer the title deed question first um when we first got into the business we had sort of really sort of grand ideas around um looking specifically at properties that did have title deed Um, issues or encumbered in some or other way and so we have dealt with um, a couple of properties that are quite messy. Um, Obviously those come with their own challenges because then you can't apply for building plans approvals um, if the title deed is not in place. So what we've had to do in two of the cases is where the title deed is in the the homeowner and the ex-husband's name we've had to get affidavits to be able to apply um, for the the building plans approval, um, we have a pipeline of about sixty homeowners at the moment who are applying for um, for our assistance or for our partnership, and of those, I would say close to fifty percent have some or other title deed issue, either the title deed is in a deceased parent's name or um there was a, a like a informal sale of the property and the transfer never went through and in those cases while we don't have the um the capabilities in-house or the professional we don't have a conveyance in-house we do assist um those applicants in finding um the right help we normally sort of um Partner with the uh, the Transaction Support Center, um, and we we send people there, or we work with them um, to try and get those titles into the into the correct property owner's name. So we are um, sort of building um, a way of assistance around that. Um, in terms of cherry picking, definitely for now, um, it's not our long term goal. Um, we're obviously trying to build a business case at the moment. Um, The township economy and the township market is still very much perceived as a risky space. Um, All of our investors so far have been international investors. It's still incredibly difficult to try and get um, South African sort of high net worth individuals to have any sort of um, faith in the space we've well this has been our personal experience obviously I'm not speaking on behalf of everyone so at the moment yes we're taking properties that um, you know have a correct title don't have title issues where we know we can get plans approval um, for the units um, that we're currently building and because we also are a very limited team we have to pick sites where the plan that we have got that we know works is going to easily be um, implementable on that site so that we don't have to go through like a whole nother like architectural design um, process. In the long term, we are um, we're working quite hard. And I see Calate um, Davies from Region 50 is here today. But we're working quite hard on a smart uh, BIM model, um, which I know Indlu already has something very similar up and running already, where we can really limit that back-end amount of architectural work that has to be done. And in doing that, you know, we'll we'll be able to open up our our net much much more widely, so that we don't have to limit the the low hanging fruit, and we'll just be picking the low hanging fruit, as as you said. Um, and so also as we go forward, we're also Really trying to look for innovative ways to, you know, how can we do this a little bit differently within within the um, the regulatory environment? Um, are there ways that we can we can start to experiment with um, alternative materials, alternative construction methodologies, um, all the while bearing in mind that we're we're aiming at a tenant market here, and we obviously want to put units into the market that are going to be able to be rented. Um, and we don't want a, a high turnover of tenant. Um, In terms of the tenant, I think it might have come across a bit too strongly. In that case, the, the guy was kind of like a known gangster in the area. Um, and he did cause a lot of trouble um, late at night on the property. Um, but yeah, I don't think. Th- in, in general, it's not, we, we haven't really, t- like, it's not an exclusionary practice that we are kind of engaging with at the moment. Um, and then the question on the rent levels, um, you know, I can't speak for Gauteng, but across Cape Town, we're seeing, and Kailiche specifically, we're seeing a range from about 1,800 to 4,000, depending on what you're getting. So 1,800 will probably just get you maybe a 15 to 20 square meter room with a shared bathroom. Um, where we're um, pitching ourselves at the moment is at the three and a half thousand, three, two and a half to three and a half thousand, which is a 20 to 25 square meter bed sit with an ensuite bathroom. And then it just really depends what area um, those units go into. Um, what kind of price point they set at. Elita Park is um, a high demand area because it's perceived to be really safe. Um, also, it's a lot more spacious. Um, and so those prices are um, a bit higher. And then in terms of Klaus's question around the government subsidies, um, personally, I mean, in terms of potentially a rental subsidy, I would see that as. An interesting innovation in this space, but a subsidy going towards homeowners to be able to um, incrementally build—I don't, I don't see that as necessary um, or or needed in this space. I think it um, is more, like I alluded to in my presentation, the market is doing this. You know, people are doing this. People are able to access finance in a multitude of ways, and with the with the growth of more sort of financial um, providers like ourselves, like INLU, like iBuild Mustandi, etc., cetera. Um, we are seeing more and more of those players come into the space. Um, and I think it would be much more sensible for the money to go into other um, spaces, public domain spaces. Um, and really kind of focusing on on uh, raising the level of services in in the spaces, Um, you know, just simple things, like I said earlier, pavements, um, you know, there's a level of with the with the increase in rental um, tenants and the the increase in um, population into certain areas because of these rental um, developments there is going to need to be a bigger focus from government, in my opinion, on um, urban management um, and just better public services.
1: Good, good. Thanks. Thanks very much, Claire. I think a really important point you just made there about, you know, if there is money investment going in, put it into the public realm as a sort of first choice, uh, rather than into private uh, hands, where it may not be actually be required in many cases. Zama, Uh, a a comment to you. I want to ask you the same question about the Dunoon versus uh, Elita Park contrast that you also (coughs) mentioned. What do you think makes the difference between these two environments and therefore what is the priority really for government action to stop the new slum formation and to facilitate sustainable neighborhoods? Um, And then a related question about the long-term plans of, of DAG because it struck me that you're working on both fronts. You're working both on the sort of practical on the ground, helping developers, but you're also raising questions and challenging government around the authorizing environment, the building regulations and, uh, and so on. Where, where do you see your uh, efforts going forward? Briefly, please, um, in, in the future.
5: Thank you, Ivan. I think uh, starting with uh, the different, like the Danone cases, I think uh, we are saying how does the municipality start to standardize the approaches? So that if you go to Kailicha district offices, you get a similar interpretation and support throughout the city of Cape Town. And then the other one, I started to mention that some of the developers are not coming from the built environment field. And within the CDA, we do a lot around capacity building exposing them to the industry. That's something that's the, the government can be provincial, national, or, or city of Cape Town to, to start an education campaign. For example, if you talk PHP, everyone knows about PHP, the different roles and responsibilities of different actors within PHP. How do we start to have that particular campaign whereby the different roles and responsibilities of the different actors within the affordable rental space are easily accessible and the processes are very open. I think for me, there's a capacity building drive that the municipality together with other spheres should drive in partnership with different stakeholders on the ground. For example, there's NGOs who are players in the sector. There's also uh, institutions like uh, uh, the the, the Transaction Support Center in Kailicha. I think uh, the other one is, the question that you are asking, uh, Ivan, now, I think uh, I have to answer that to the board on the 1st of uh, December. Where are we, Where are we going <laughs> from now? I think uh, there is a lot of demand from the ground. For example, uh, two weeks back, we were in Naisna, we were in Mosul There's a lot of demand in terms of the services that are being uh, given to the sector by the CDA. Unfortunately, within the CDA, we are stressed, but I think as DAG, this is a sector whereby we have managed to raise, uh, I'll say, funding from outside for the next three years. And we are committing ourselves to work with government, to work with finance institutions, to work with emerging developers, so that at least we can contribute uh, affordable rental units for the next three years. And we're looking at, for now, we are still operating within dag You never know, maybe in the next year or so, we can start to say CDA is a different entity that is operating, not only in Cape Town, but also nationally. I think uh, nationally, around advocacy and lobbying. I think uh, our advocacy and lobbying strategies are always influenced by our own, uh, what is it? In, uh, our own reading of what is happening on the ground. And I think, uh, a city, we're at a good uh, situation whereby we can start to engage nationally to say, look, in terms of uh, the rental market uh, uh, context, where can we go? And I think as Dag just to say here by closing, we are part of a group of uh, NGOs, uh, Isanga Institute and VPU, looking at the backyard market. And I think I will be engaging with different uh, government departments around how and what can be done in terms of taking and supporting the backyard uh, rental uh, uh, space forward. So I think uh, we are committed to this and we are willing to engage and we've got our own funding that we are putting in for the next three years to support the, the, the sector.
1: That's great. Thank you very much. Very good to, to hear that, that you see this as an important part of your, your work. just a a quick question to you, Neville, we're we're beginning to run out of time, but uh, it it was very interesting to hear you say that uh, the department is open to change, that there is a reconsideration of uh, priorities, uh, recognition that the housing human settlements uh, budget has not met the demand for housing, particularly in cities, uh, and there are significant challenges. I, I suppose the question that all the participants would like me to put to you is, you know how can we engage with you and start this conversation about um refashioning our our uh, human settlements program so that uh it we feel it's more responsive to the needs uh and demands that are and the dynamics in our cities that we've heard some of uh, this afternoon what's the best way of taking forward this this conversation uh thanks uh
6: ivan i mean we've got a we've got a a civil society uh, platform that we we there's a number of uh, civil society organizations that are part of that and 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 what we've committed to do through that platform is to share uh what the department's doing particularly in relation to policy uh what are some of the issues that are being or the departments needs to take note of so for example uh, the rapid land release program that Minister susulu's pending uh, to announce in a, in a couple of weeks after it, it gets cabinet approval, and I think the one other big one. Uh, so I'm welcome to. I mean, I mean, we we welcome to have a a more intensive discussion, and and we can get hold of you can we can we can we can have that uh, on that platform, uh, and 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 we're open to do that. I think the the important thing is. Uh, I mean, just, just go back to the whole point about the issue around, uh, well, what comes first, the, the the implementation of the policy. I mean, I think the one issue that we need to concede in, in South Africa is that we've just had too much of policy before implementation. And I think the good thing about this program is that is it has led and we have to retrofit. And I suppose what that does is that it allows us to ensure that we are not—it's a bottom-up approach, rather than the, the, the you know, because uh, I think too much of policy is, 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 is just misdirected in terms of its way where, it seeks to achieve the best uh, outcome. Thanks.
1: Uh, thanks very much. That's a, a nice a point uh, to, to conclude. So let me just spend a couple of minutes. Uh, we're going to f- finish in a couple of minutes. Couple of minutes, just drawing it through a few threads together. Uh, Thanks very much to all the speakers for engaging uh, actively and uh, fascinating presentations. Um, We've had some really diverse perspectives. It's worked out really well from national to local um, and everything in between. This is clearly a very dynamic space, uh, in many ways, very exciting space to see things happening, many of which are good things, meeting demands, meeting needs. and uh, creating jobs, creating investment, creating income. Uh, that's very, very positive. Uh, clearly there are also some, some serious downsides and risks here. Uh, and the Dunoon scenario I think has loomed quite large. The danger of uh, unregulated, hugely pressurized environments where the infra- infrastructure starts to collapse and where uh, social tensions are very high leading to conflict and uh, all sorts of consequences that I don't need to spell out to you around xenophobia and so on. So this is not a space we can just, I think, let uh, carry on the way it's carrying on. I think it's really important for government to engage. Now, it's quite complicated where to start this engagement to try and improve what's happening, to build on it, to scale it up and to improve the quality of what's happening. We've talked about this contrast between the bottom up, um, getting on with doing things, working with people, working with communities, working with developers. That's really important. But we also have heard this afternoon that we've also got to address the broader systemic issues around financing, around the regulatory system um, in particular. Uh, And um, I think we need to try and find a way of of maintaining both of these uh it's kind of levels in our minds as we as we go forward so that we don't work in isolation we try and find a way somehow to reconcile the important reforms that are required of the system with the important lessons and, and experience that's gained from ground level uh activity i think that's a big big challenge for us and i think that basically requires um research and monitoring and evaluation of what's happening is clearly a big job for people who are observing this to to, uh, try to keep everything in the frame, to recognize the complexity, but also to uh, try and understand the way forward um, to hold this together. So I think we do need to think about, how do we sustain these conversations? How do we uh, ensure that we are open to the learning that's happening on the ground, but also to uh, willing to accept the need for advocacy and uh, lobbying to change uh, b- the broader systems and rules. That for me is, is re- it requires open-minded uh, people. It requires mindsets, accepting the need for change. It requires, you know, good, good conversations. So I think, I hope the HSRC can play a role in that space. Um, and would look forward to uh, any comments actually from participants uh, afterwards by email or whatever. If you, th- if you're th- you have think- thoughts about how we can take this forward, uh, build on the momentum that's been established, and ensure that um, this, this agenda really starts going forward. Because there has been discussion about backyarding for a decade or so. There have been very small scale experiments. Neville mentioned one in Soweto, there have been a number around the country. But we've struggled to really build a momentum around institutional reform, systemic reform. Um, And so it's really important that we try to to sustain that. So without further ado, it's past two o'clock. I see somebody had a hand raised. I'm sorry, I'm going to uh, have to uh, finish this this meeting now. But please feel free to email and uh, keep in touch. This, as I say, is an ongoing agenda let's please try and stay in touch and have follow-up events uh, 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 to take forward the uh, really interesting uh, lessons we've heard today. So thanks for joining. We've had a fantastic turnout, really excellent speakers. Uh, Thank you very much uh, everybody and uh, goodbye.